Well, thanks, Joyce, and thanks, uh, Shane. Friends, keep your Bibles open uh, to Hebrews chapter 10 there, the second part of it. Uh, that's what we'll be uh, working through together this morning. Uh, we, we're on the, in some sense, perhaps entering into the home stretch of Hebrews. Still a little way to go, but uh, certainly entering into the home stretch and uh, some great encouragement for us today in, God's pas- in this passage. So let's just take a moment to pray and ask God uh, to help us as we listen to it together. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for all that you have taught us already in the book of Hebrews. Father, as we've reflected on your people and all that they have been going through and recognising all that they have in the Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord God, that you would remind us again the great blessing that we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, It's a little outline on the back there, just uh, in case you're not aware, um, if you want to take any notes this morning. But... Yeah, you know, who's been bungee jumping? One, two. There you go. We're a pretty, uh, you know, we're a pretty kind of conservative lot, aren't we? Anyway, I, I once had uh, two opportunities to go bungee jumping in New Zealand. Uh, one was at the Shotover River in Queenstown, uh, and the other was at another river north of Christchurch. I was keen to have a go. Uh, a couple of friends of mine were doing it but I'd been having some troubles with my knees and the doctors weren't very positive about their future. And I didn't know whether or not a, a, a bungee jumping exercise would do any damage, but in the end I was kind of unsure uh, and I lacked the confidence that everything would be okay and so I kind of shrunk back and didn't do it. Kind of regretted it ever since, but didn't do it. Um, because having confidence is an incredibly important thing when we're about to do something, as Julian has already uh, reminded us. And can I say that having confidence is also a crucial part of being Christian? And yet lots of Christians seem to lack confidence. I think Josh kind of reflected on it a little bit last week. But there are things important to the Christian life uh, that they seem to be unsure of in this church that all these Christians that are being written to in the book of Hebrews. Um, We need to be sure. We need to have confidence in what it is we are as Christians. So, for example, if you're, you're not forgiven, that your sins are completely... If you're not confident your sins are completely forgiven then you'll perhaps be afraid that you might still face God's judgment, that God might not accept you in the end. Or if you're not confident that God loves you, you might struggle to depend on him when you're having a rough patch. Or if you're not confident that God hears and answers your prayers, then you'll either not be bothered speaking to him or your prayers will be empty rituals that you shouldn't expect any answers from. Or if you're not confident that God is the sovereign ruler in control of his universe, then you'll think that everything you need and want depends upon you. And you'll try to do uh, and do everything yourself and ignore his help, ignore his plans for you and his world. And then kind of when things go wrong, you'll feel helpless, a failure and perhaps fearful. And I say a lack of confidence is a terrible problem for living the Christian life. Now, I'm not saying that you should never have doubts, but if your Christian life is all doubt, then you've probably got an information problem. See, Christians have actually no need to be lacking in confidence. Confidence that your sins are completely forgiven and forgotten, confidence that God loves you, a confidence that he hears and answers your prayers, 
confidence that he is the sovereign ruler who has a plan for you and his world. And so the warning in today's passage is, don't throw away your confidence. See down there in verse 35. Hold it fast. Don't, whatever you do, shrink back from Jesus. That would be a big mistake. Okay, well, let's, let's have a look at the passage itself and because the first thing that you notice is that this is a since-then passage. The author starts off, since we have this, then let us do this. Uh, the then isn't written, but it's there implicitly. Uh, there are two since we have uh, in verses 19 and 21, and there are three let us do this in verses 22, 23, and 24. Uh, let's read it through again, and you can see it there on the screen. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, these verses pretty well wrap up everything that has been spoken about in the last 10 chapters. Uh, it's the idea that in Jesus we have the ultimate or the best of everything. Jesus is the ultimate priest, offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins in the most holy place in heaven itself. You see, here is the reason that humanity can now come into the presence of God. Our confidence is based on Jesus, on all that he has done for us. It was pretty clear from last week that people can't come into God's presence because of their sin. It was also clear that the Old Testament ritual of animal sacrifices uh, didn't work. They couldn't work, according to chapter 10, verse 4. In fact, these sacrifices were actually a reminder, we were told last week, year in, year out, that the people were sinful and they could not go into the presence of God. You know, you might remember the, uh, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. You know, God chose to be present with his people, but he remained separated from them behind that thick curtain that only one man could enter once a year, the high priest. But have a look at uh, verses 19 and 20 there today. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You see, the way that the high priest entered into God's presence was, was through that curtain. The curtain stood between God and man, but now Jesus is that curtain. It's actually through Jesus that we can now enter ourselves into God's presence. In fact, Jesus, uh, our great priest, is the curtain raiser, if you like. Our confidence is based on him. 
And it's why, of course, the church doesn't need priests, because Jesus is the only priest that we will ever need. Before Jesus, people couldn't escape the reality of their sinfulness, and their religion actually made sure that they didn't forget it. But because of Jesus' once and for all perfect sacrifice, see what the author says back in verse 17? He says that now God himself promises that he will remember our sins no more. They're gone. We're washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Under the old covenant, the old agreement with God and his people, uh, because of their sin, the people were fearful in their approach to God. However, as Christians under the new covenant, our approach to God is confident and joyous because of Jesus. He is our great priest who by his death has secured for us the right to enter the presence of God at any time. Well, okay, uh, so then since we have this confidence, he says, how should we live? Well, he says, let us do three things. And he gives those three, three instructions that we saw before. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how. That is, now that Christ has made it possible, Christians ought to draw near to God. Can I say, it's an act of faith for Christians to draw near to God. It actually means that we trust or we rely or we depend upon the sacrifice that Jesus has made to enable us to draw near to God. It's taking the sacrifice of Jesus and then acting on it in believing that it it did what Jesus said it would do. And so the Christian life is lived out by an ever-increasing confidence or dependence on God. The only way that we can please God, the only way that we can grow in our love and our knowledge of him, the only way that we can stand firm in hard times is as we daily draw near and depend on him. Now, when we draw near to God, what we do is we, we enter into a deep relationship of love and trust. You know, when I surprised uh, Leonie, my wife, by taking her to Tasmania for our 15th wedding anniversary, I thought that that was a deep expression of my love and commitment to her. And I'm sure you'd agree, right? But can I say, when God sent Jesus to die on a cross for me and for you, there was and there never will be any greater expression of love and commitment to us than that. See, my expression of love for Leone was next to meaningless in comparison. You just haven't got how much you're loved if you don't draw near to God. You know, friends, we'll never be the church that God wants us to be, that we want to be, if we don't take seriously this command to draw near to God. You won't grow in your own Christian life. You won't experience the true joy it is to be in a a deep and personal relationship with God if you kind of only sit on the edges of the Christian life. It's kind of like being in a a lecture room or a school room. If you're, you're sitting kind of right at the front, then there's very few distractions. The teacher can see you and you can see her. You're, you're much more engaged in what's happening. But if you're sitting right up the back, 
You're kind of much further away from the action. I'm not talking deliberately about you people down there, right? <laughs> you can't see the teacher as well. Uh, she can't see you. There's more distractions. You're less engaged. Well, you're in the room, but you're not engaged in the same way up the back as you are right down the front. And can I say, I reckon that's how a lot of, uh, a lot of our Christian lives are. Uh, we're in the room. We're Christians. But we're not really engaged. We're not really drawing near. We're sitting up the back row of our relationship with God. We hear a bit of what he's saying, but we're kind of distracted. We're hardly drawing near. And you know, so you and I will, will never grow as Christians. We'll never make progress in putting off sin in our lives. Uh, we'll never be mightily used of God. Our church will stagnate unless we take seriously the, the need to draw near to God. The Christian must live his or her life in ever-increasing dependence on God, not hoping that he'll hear us on the off chance that we might remember to pray. We draw near to God as we, we engage with him in prayer, as we meditate on his word and, and allow him to speak and guide us. And he promises to guide us, to direct us, to answer our prayers. And we're actually urged to cast all of our cares on him. He's described as a good father who longs to give us good gifts. And yet I imagine it's easy, isn't it, to fail to take anywhere near the advantage of being able to draw near to God. If we want God to direct and bless the life of our church, then we need to be much more serious about this great privilege of drawing near to him. And if we're serious about wanting God to have his way in our lives and our church, then we will pray. We'll pray every day. We'll meet to pray together. We'll be opening God's word on a daily basis and learning from it. And if we took this command seriously, you know, we, would, we wouldn't be able to see everyone on the screen at our, our Wednesday morning Zoom prayer meeting, I don't think. Our quarterly prayer meetings here, we probably wouldn't fit in the building. And so come and join us. Well, can I say, you know, as I hop down off my high horse, um, the second let us here is for us to hold fast to our confession of hope. That is, Christians have a, a real and substantial hope for the future. It's, it's not wishful thinking. It's a sure confidence that God has made promises to us and that he will, as he always has, fulfill his promises to us. Now, it doesn't matter who we are. We base our lives on hopes for the future. See, when you lose hope, you lose life itself. Uh, during the, the wars of last century, it was shown over and over again that the ones who survived uh, prisoner of war camps, uh, they were those who pinned their lives on specific hopes that they had for the future. Uh, a few years back, I had a friend who promised to pray for me without fail every day. And I have absolutely no doubt that he did. And the reason why is because every other commitment that he ever made in our relationship, he never failed. He always kept his promise to me. He was faithful. And for that reason, I'm sure that he kept his commitment to pray for me also. It was completely rational to confidently believe or hope that he would pray for me. God has given us a hope, great promises for our future, and God has shown himself to be faithful to us. 
We have every reason to hold fast to our hope. Now, there are, of course, people who live hopeless lives, lives of despair. But a Christian is a rational person of hope. We're going to find out a little bit more about that in the following weeks, and so I'll leave it there. But it's such an important part of who, it is, who we are as Christians. Well, the final let us here is uh, let us consider. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And, well, yes, uh, what a good thing for us to consider, don't you think? Uh, the last let us turns the spotlight particularly on you and me, on me and Julian, on Lisa and Emily, on Tony and Raymond. Let us, that's you. Not them, not the leaders, it's, it's you. Let us. Now, this last let us here is actually made up of three different things that we're to do. First, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Secondly, let us not neglect to meet together. And then thirdly, let us encourage one another. Now, the second phrase here, notice that uh, let us not neglect to meet together is actually crucial to helping us do the others here. Now, it seems that some in this congregation that is being written to possibly because of the pressure that they were under because of their faith and the, the persecution they were going through. But whatever, for whatever reason, they no longer felt it necessary or were able to keep meeting with their Christian brothers and sisters. Now, it might be possible in some ways to encourage each other without necessarily seeing each other. You can keep praying for someone. You can write them an email of encouragement uh, you can even speak to them on the phone and stir them up or spur them on to some love and good deeds. I mean, those things are all good and we should do them. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the encouragement and for the spur on that I've received in those ways over the years from people that I've been in church with. And so they are very helpful. Keep on doing those things for each other. But can I say, it's not quite the same, is it, as spending time together. I mean, the relationship is impossible to keep at the same level if you don't see each other. Now, this is good advice that the writer is giving us. Not only is meeting together enjoyable, but it's wise. And it's the best way to stir up one another to love and good works and to encourage one another. I mean, some people do lunch. Christians do church. And you can do church over lunch if you like. Uh, because church isn't actually just meeting in these four walls at 10.30am and 5pm each Sunday, though it is one very important part of it, but churches where either two or more are gathered around God's word and prayer and learn and encourage and stir one another up and on. Christianity is a social religion. That's the character of it. It's not an individual or a private religion. It first brings us into relationship with God and also into relationship with God's people. You can't maintain relationships with people you never meet with. Now, I know that it's not always convenient to meet with each other, but you've got to make the effort. A family that doesn't meet together drifts apart. You've got to keep organising your life to see each other, which, of course, isn't a burden but a joy. There's no greater joy, is there, than, than meeting and spending time with family and friends that you love and care for. And so the writer of Hebrews urges his readers not to stop meeting together. It's crucial 
to our ability to persevere in our faith. And it's necessary as a reminder to keep loving each other and living a life of godliness and good works. And then finally, it's essential because the return of Christ to judge the world is steadily approaching. And I, for one, want everyone here to be ready for that day. Well, we need to keep moving, and the author here moves to talk about the danger. That is, the danger if we don't persevere in our faith. Uh, Let me just pick it up there at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author wants his readers to know that Christianity is not a game. He wants them to know that you can't get anything worse than ignoring or drifting away from Jesus. And verse 26 makes it clear that this is a a willful turning away from God. It appears that uh, there are people who know the truth, but they're defiantly turning against it. Uh, They seem to have been once a part of the fellowship, but now they've separated themselves and they're engaged in deliberate, continuous and probably public rejection of Jesus. He's not saying that if a Christian commits sin, even, even knowingly at times, that he or she can't be forgiven. I mean, the concern here is defiant sinning. It's, it's not committing one sin. It's, it's not even getting into a bad habit of sin that you're desperately trying to shake. If you're worried about your sin, then you can't be defiantly, defiantly rejecting God. And if you're a Christian struggling with sin, know for sure that you have been and stand forgiven right now. Continue to repent when you slip up, for sure, and draw near to God in dependence on him so that his spirit can enable you to put to death sin in your life. But we can be sure that this is an urgent warning, and out of necessity, it's a stern warning. That is, he urges them to cling to their faith in Christ because to reject him is to reject the only sacrifice that God has provided for our forgiveness. There's no other way to get right with God. Well, just as there's uh, great danger in failing to persevere in your faith, there is, on the other hand, great joy if you do. Uh, In verses 32 to 34, the writer reminds his readers of their good beginning as Christians. I mean, early on, they had uh, either endured persecution themselves for their faith or they had willingly stood beside their fellow Christians who were suffering. Have a look there at verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now that's an extraordinary insight, isn't it, into the early life of obedience of these Christians. They joyfully lost their property under persecution because they were Christians. Now what a, what a challenge that ought to be to us about the value we place on our worldly goods. I mean, the only reason they could do that is because they were confident of the full value of their eternal inheritance that they would receive in Christ. See, the only way to get this life into proper perspective is to have a proper perspective on the life to come. Now, I've got to say that I'm very grateful that my wife has this proper perspective. Now, you might see yourself as uh, pretty romantic, but can I say I doubt you come close to my wife. I mean, have a, have a listen to what she wrote to me on the, the 14th of February, 1992, Valentine's Day. I don't always share our kind of intimate, uh, you know, reflections to one another. Uh, well, hers to mine, which comes much more often. But anyway, um, for which I apologise publicly. Um, 14th of February, 1992, this is what she wrote to me. Dear Rod, so we do not throw away our confidence because it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Love, Leonie. That's nice, isn't it? See, my wife cares deeply for me, so deeply that she's concerned for my eternal salvation. Now, you recognise those words as the words from the final part of our passage here today, although probably in the NIV, I'm guessing. But is, the Christian life calls on us to persevere, doesn't it? To press on to hold fast, to not shrink back. Life in general can sometimes be very difficult, but being a Christian can sometimes increase the burden. But we have a hope that far outweighs any of the comparatively fleeting troubles of this world, and we are urged to hold fast to Jesus and to press on in him. See, where will you be in, say, five or ten years' time? Will you be playing around the fringes of a church without really getting involved? Or will you be going strong in your faith, helping others to stay loyal to Jesus, spurring one another on to love and good deeds as you draw near to God yourself? Because Christianity isn't a game. Drift from Jesus, the writer says, and there is nowhere else to go. But we have every reason to be confident because of all that Jesus has done for us. And so he says, don't throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that Jesus has done for us. We have confidence to draw near to you, which is what we do right now as we come before you now with thankfulness for our salvation in Jesus Christ, for the hope that we have for the future, for the assurance that our sins are remembered no more. But we also know that we live in a world that is hostile to Jesus, and so it is going to take confidence 
and are holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would give us both that confidence and the ability to cling to Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen. What Rod has talked about is great news. God has rescued us. He has saved us from the power of sin and the fear of death. Now that's something to celebrate. Let's do that. Let's stand.